It's been over a year now since In The Key Of Q launched. In our archive, you can find over 50 interviews of queer musicians from around the world and hear their music from rap Unaware of my proclivities to self-sabotage to country soul and rock. These episodes are available on the main feed. You can access them via the website at inthekeyofq.com or wherever you normally listen to podcasts. This is Dan here. Thanks for downloading this episode. Many thanks to our listeners who are financially supporting the podcast over at patreon.com slash inthekeyofq. You are genuinely helping to keep the series in production and more importantly, to give us space for queer voices to be heard. My Canadian guest this week discusses how an empowering arts high school saved him from the familiar classroom queer experience of isolation. He talks about the compromises queer culture has made to be accepted into mainstream, and also the homophobia, sexism, and racism behind Rock's hatred of disco. Share your thoughts about today's episode on social media using the hashtag QueerMusic, or email me direct on podcast at inthekeyofq.com. And if you've a moment, please do subscribe, rate, and review the show on your podcast provider. All that's left to say is enjoy the episode. In our in our attempt to, to be accepted by mainstream media, you know, we, we've we've uh, you know exchanged leather parties for for quiche, you know parties and, 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 you know, barbecues with neighbors. So it might have been, I don't know, it's a very interesting disconnect. Hello, I'm Dan Hall. When I grew up, I almost never heard pop songs where openly queer men sang about their truths, and it made me feel invisible. There were the occasional heroes like Jimmy Somerville, Mark Almond and Andy Bell, but in the tsunami of 1980s heteronormative pop, I felt silenced. But these days, there are plenty of songs where I can hear openly queer men singing their truths. And this podcast is all about finding and sharing this music and speaking with the musicians who create it. Music helps us feel connected, feel heard, and know that we are not alone on our queer journey. You're listening to In The Key Of Q. My guest is relatively new to the music scene, releasing his first single in 2020. Since then, he has released four more, including a remix special of the single, This Is How We Make The Love. His sound features tinges of grunge mixed with the British 80s goth scene, a splattering of punks, guitar and fury, and a smidge of pop. And he joins us today, all the way from Canada. A big welcome to Mr. Slade. Mr. Slade, hello. Hi, how are you? But isn't making you blue When no one falls for you Well, you 
musically, I've been inspired by a lot of similar bands that you just mentioned earlier, like music from the 80s. I kind of wanted to take a sound, you know, the sound from the 80s, but kind of almost a future projection of what we thought music would have sounded like back in 1982. So I was very much inspired by, uh, you know, the music I grew up to um, and the music that I found very sexy, to be honest with you, which were like artists like Billy Idol and Blondie and David Bowie. Um, but I wanted to create something a little bit more modern and a little bit more fun and um, kind of just create and take a bunch of my different influences and just combine them all. Now, you spoke there about Billy Idol. I had such a crush on him. Who didn't? <laughs> oh, my goodness, man. When did you first discover you were gay? When Billy Idol. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's all that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm done. And done. Dusted. Where's my card? <laughs> I think we should all. We I think we all owe Billy Idol a big, a big thank you. Yeah, you know, if if religion wants someone to blame for all the gay men in the world, blame Billy Idol. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, they went after the wrong target, didn't they? It's Billy Idol. Exactly. So, what is it about the eighties sound that particularly appeals to you? Well, I grew up in that kind of era, right? So I think it was just in my formative years, um, you know, before, you know, I think discovering your sexuality or, you know, again, discovering Billy Idol, it was a relative time of innocence because you didn't have anything. It was unfiltered to some degree. You just had you and your thoughts. And so to me, you know, even Freddie Mercury, Queen, all that, that, that kind of um, era of music was very, very sexual to me. It was also very masculine and aggressive and sexual. And so I loved that genre of music um more so for the spirit of it more so than the sound of it if that makes sense like the the, the aesthetic and the feel of it you know it was, it was pre-aids so i mean it's right pre-aids kind of so there was that weird sexual liberation and and celebration and uh that to me kind of resonated throughout my life I grew up in the suburbs of Toronto. Um, it wasn't it wasn't very fun. It wasn't fun at all. It was actually quite awful. And the, the thing that kind of saved me was um, having pop role models like Madonna, you know, someone who personified strength and, and control and power. So um, music in so many ways literally saved my life. Um, you know, a typical, you know, a typical miserable childhood and teenage years. Um, however, all that changed when I went to an arts high school, um, which was very um, pro-art. You know, I, um, my first boyfriend was on student council and, you know, it was a completely different experience to anything that my friends had ever experienced, to be honest with you. So um, it was very interesting high school uh teenage life. I went from being very, very unpopular and sitting by myself in the library to have my lunch so I wouldn't get harassed to becoming very, very popular and having a lot of friends and being invited to a lot of parties um, and being very openly gay. So it was a very interesting. I think that kind of really changed my perspective on things and, and gave me a certain amount of freedom to be myself in my formative teenage years. So um, all in all, it was a really rough start, but a really, really great finish. I think a lot of us can really identify with that sense of loneliness and that sense mm -hmm. of isolation. Can you think of any examples where that feeling was at its peak that you experienced? I remember in grade 11, I would, to avoid being in the cafeteria and getting harassed and picked on, I would go up to the library and there'd be little cubicles where you're supposed to study. And I would quietly eat my, my, my lunch there and have my Walkman and, um, you know, listen to music and things like that as a, as a form of escape. Um, 
you know, like I said, someone like Madonna was a huge, huge influence in my life because really was a, a reminder that this is, you know, things get better. You know, one day you'll grow up, you'll be in control of your life, you'll have power and you can say what you want to say and do what you want to do. So that was literally the only beacon of light in my life for the very longest time. So I suppose that's why music is so important to me now. To your point, we really didn't have any kind of queer representation on TV or in media or anything like that. So it was a very isolating, lonely time. Um, and then you'd have these little winks and nods sent to you by someone on mainstream. And that was enough, basically, that that really kind of just allowed you to survive. It seemed to me that often 80s music was one of two things that I particularly liked. Either it felt icy and cold and was very kind of East Berlin. Mm-hmm which was a huge mood and feel in the, and certainly in Europe in the eighties in the pop scene in the early eighties, or it was this forget, forget, you know, forget your troubles, come on, get happy mm-hmm. type production. And, and I certainly remember, especially in the latter half of the eighties, I really gravitated towards Stockhaken and Waterman and mm-hmm. people would always say to me, Oh, it's just throwaway pop. It's just rubbish. And it's got no feeling. And I would just think, Hey, I've got enough fucking turmoil inside. Yeah. Me. I, I want to put on some Stockhaken and Waterman and yes. forget the turmoil for a bit. Yeah, no, a hundred percent agreed. And I mean, God bless Stockhaken and Waterman. They provided, I think they really provided for a lot of us just again, a bit of relief from, from the day to day that we have to go through. I mean, you know, when your life is a Morrissey song, you, the last thing you want to do is pop on some Morrissey and, and be <laughs> even worse about yourself, right? That's so, so true. <laughs> I didn't know the Stockhaken and Waterman had really made it over to Canada. They didn't, to be honest with you. And that was kind of the funny and interesting thing, too. No, they absolutely did not. Kylie Minogue was not popular at all. Um, I just would just go to Europe a lot. And, um, you know, once you hear a song like I Should Be So Lucky, you're hooked. Done. Like anything from, you know, once you hear a Bananarama song, you're, you're done. That's it. Right. So, um, no, I would scour the, you know, our downtown and all the import sections to find albums. And I would pay tons of money, uh, all my weekly allowances just for a cassette single of, you know, um, Sunita or, you know, another Stock Icon Waterman cassette single. Yeah, but they were not popular at all here, unfortunately, in North America. I'm just, sorry, I'm just a little bit dazzled at hearing a Canadian accent say the name Sunita. <laughs> I hope I'm pronouncing it right. You're, well, she's American, right? You're so. pronouncing it absolutely perfectly. Sunita. But it's, but it's I, honestly, I bought the So Macho 12-inch single and played that at max volume for, not gay. for months. I know, exactly. Not gay at all. And the fact that her B-side to that was called Cruising. Well, her mother wrote so many men, so to too many men, too little time, right? So I mean, I didn't must know have been that. genetics. Yeah, that was her mom, Tony Miguel. Wow. So many men, yeah. That's a great song. So really, it's <laughs> about love. <laughs> it might go on my covers list. It might be potential cover songs. Absolutely. So then you eventually left school and you went to this fantastic art school. Mm-hmm. What did that feel like for you going into a space that felt like you could be so much more your authentic self? The flamboyancy was celebrated and not scoffed at. And so it was a really big 
mind fucked to some degree, but it was such an amazing experience to be like, okay, I could very much just be myself and paint my hair blue if I want to and come to school and, and people would think it would be cool. So it really was kind of uh, very, very interesting and really kind of set the way I live my life today, basically, because it just, you know, and I, I wish to God more students and more people had this kind of an experience. But there's something really remarkable about just being completely authentic to yourself and being yourself and not being afraid that it was you're not going to be liked. But in fact, being liked just for being who you are, it, it's a remarkable thing. And um, to go from one extreme to the other was really quite, um, quite exhilarating. So what was Canada like to be a queer teenager? Because you were a queer teen, I'm guessing, in the late 80s, early 90s? Um, early mid-90s. I was born in 77. So early... Uh, I was a teenager kind of right when things started opening up again. So we were kind of at the AZT point. And, you know, to your point, like HIV and AIDS was such a huge part of, of childhood and teenage years. Um, you know, it was, we were inundated with messages of safe sex and, and things like that. So um, I kind of almost judge my my or uh, my my childhood and my teen years as a queer person to to the AIDS crisis basically for for those of our younger listeners for whom HIV AIDS is is just something that other people talk about and they don't have much idea about it could you just explain a little bit about what did happen in Canada well, the scene was completely decimated, right? There was no pride parades for quite a while. Um, being gay meant you were going to die a terrible, lonely, horrible death. So there was this massive fear. And I think that's very similar, like I said, to some degree, in my perspective, it's quite similar to what we feel like now, right? Someone coughs and you think, oh, 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 oh. Um, back then it was like someone's gay and they sat next to you on a bus. Oh my gosh, you better be careful. You might have AIDS. Um, it was really, really, really awful. And I think... Figuring out yourself and figuring out your feelings. You know, I also grew up in a born again Christian household, which added a lot more um, awfulness to the situation. Um, but it really kind of loomed large in my life and influenced things in a lot of way. And it was a very, very heavy, heavy time because, again, being gay or knowing someone that was gay or being around someone that was gay meant you might now have AIDS. So the stigma, um, was was terrible i'm sure as as was in most parts of the world but that's essentially how it was and then like i said in, in you know the 19 around 1994 it started you know we had a lot more information we had a lot more education this is way before the internet so you know in, in, information trickled down quite slowly but the nice thing is information to some degree trickled down quite factually which is quite different than what we have right now i suppose to some degree so you know it was a very slow evolution from um from the feeling that you know being gay it was a death sentence to being gay meant okay you, you you'd still survive or you'll still live i still remember very vividly thinking every time i was having sex all oh, this could kill me mm -hmm. i was just watching a normal heart the hbo film yesterday and i had forgotten how alarming it is that you just got used to constantly associating your own sex life with death yeah and stigma and being stigmatized, right? And not, it wasn't just death; it was an awful public death that your family would have been aware of and been embarrassed. Like it was traumatizing, right? And I think that's quite interesting. I think it would be quite interesting to figure, you know, how much of our our desire is tied up into into that kind of um, foreboding. I think a lot of it is because 
certainly I would look back on my thoughts and my behaviors now and, and I sometimes think, oh, do I seem to sometimes be veering a little bit towards nihilism and, and oh, and, and then I suddenly think, well, that's just scars. That's just scarring mm. from, from a time when you were kind of, you either sort of locked your penis away mm-hmm. or if you even got it out once, you, you might as well just burn in hell. Mm-hmm. But I think also, too, an interesting thing about that, I think, is there was an aggressiveness to it as well, because you, it wasn't just casual, if, if that makes sense. It really was, you know, there was so much behind it. There was so much behind every erection so that it, it really was with purpose almost to some degree. And it was almost an act of defiance in itself. And it was saying, fuck you. No, I'm going to live. I'm going to choose to live at, in this moment. I think there was a lot more at stake. And so there was a lot more, I think, to gain than than there is now when it's just Again, I don't want to sound like one of those old people that's just pissing on today. Um, but there was, I think, a certain sense of gust, you know, going with gusto back in the day um, because there was such a huge price tag to it. And how would you feel that that experience then influenced you as a young adult? Um, I think it taught me to just be very aggressive with life in terms of enjoying it. Um, and I think that kind of ties back to my music. And that's kind of what I like to write about. Uh, you know, as you get older, you kind of, or maybe not even when you get older, I think that might just be a personality trait. But I believe that, you know what, here, we're all going to die at some point. So before I die, I want to live. I want to live aggressively. I want to be, uh, I want to have a lot of fun. And I want to be the reason someone else is having fun. So I think that to me has been very, very important to, to go to your point, right? Like, you know, every erection could be your last erection because, you know, you might die of AIDS. I think when you grow up with that kind of being imposed on you, you really do purposely and aggressively live life to the fullest and not really worry about the stupid small things, but just, okay, what what's the most important thing? Having fun, you know, being fun, um, sharing love, sharing laughter, you know, um, those kind of things are the most important things in life. you look at the US right now and you look at all the crazy people, I mean, it sounds awful. I appreciate you saying this, but if you look at all the crazy people, those are the born again Christian evangelicals. And that's kind of the environment I grew up in. Um, beyond toxic, really, really beyond toxic. It's very mentally limiting, very emotionally limiting. Um, you know, and I think breaking away from that, I, I think I consider myself spiritual. I think, you know, um, I believe in a higher power, what that higher power is called. I don't know. I'm not going to be arrogant enough to assume that I know those answers. I think, you know, the great thing about life is it's a journey to discover those answers and I'm completely open. But yeah, growing up, you know, in an evangelical born again Christian environment was really, really toxic. I remember very, very vividly on my 
on my uh, backyard patio reading 1984. Um, I think when I was 16 years old, and I thought, oh my God, this could, I mean, for some people, this is their life. This was, they had no choice. I am so blessed. I am so lucky that I don't have this as my life. So fuck it. I'm just going to, you know, live my life the way I want to live my life. And this sounds like a daft question, apologies in advance, but what is the difference between a Christian and a born-again Christian? Is it somebody who sort of was a Christian and forgot? Oh. <laughs> a remind again christian yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> um no it's it, i think it's just the, the extremity the extremism basically it's much more like uh it's more, more about self-righteousness and converting people so i actually was um a, like a youth minister assistant basically and my job was to con- go around to neighborhoods and convert people and invite them to church so it's much more about it's much more about power and it's much more about control and it has nothing to do with with uh, compassion or or love or anything like that you then went into young adulthood and what point did music start to become so important to you that you thought, oh, I've got to start making it? Honestly, when I was in my late 20s, early 30s, um, you know, I, uh, I loved performing, um, but I was more also into a lot of visual arts and things like that. And then all of a sudden, I just put pen to, I, I, I was really bored at work, to be honest with you. I used to work in retail on a makeup counter, and I was just really, really bored at work. And I would just start humming along songs or making up songs to amuse people or to amuse my, my coworkers. And they were like, oh, that's very catchy. And so I would just put pen to paper. I'm like, oh, let's, I might as well start a band. That might be kind of fun. And that's when that started. And then so I found a guitarist, started working with the guitarist, um, and then I had a band. We would play everywhere. In Toronto, we played Pride quite a few times. Uh, and then we broke up. And then life happened. And then COVID happened. And I thought, eh, this might be a good time to put out some music. And that's pretty much what I did. I really love the idea that you talk about your sound being a parallel universe sort of projection forward of where eight is music could have gone had had things moved in a different direction because it really does sound like that. it doesn't sound like you're being retro but at the same time you can feel the dna in in those songs thanks no that's a huge compliment yeah and that was kind of my goal it was almost like what if aids didn't happen in the 80s and what if there wasn't a stigmatization against gay men in the 80s and you could be a gay man rock star you know like what would have happened then basically so it's an alternative timeline music that's a fascinating train of thought. Yeah, it is. I think we would have had more Freddie Mercury's. I think we would have had more, you know, I think we would have a, a male equivalent to Madonna, basically. I've still very much got a normal heart in my head, having only watched it last night. And there's an mm-hmm. amazing speech that a character gives at a funeral where he says something like, I'm overwhelmed with all the songs that won't get sung, mm-hmm. all the dances that won't be choreographed, all the speeches that won't be written. and and it's it's a dangerous path to go down to start thinking of all the absences because it's a it's a black hole. Yeah, it's an entire generation lost, right? I mean, we've we've had an entire generation of our brothers, you know, and, and sisters too that were they were just vanished basically.
Now, I'm curious that at the moment in the gay community, something that I've very much noticed since I went on prep uh, is that on apps, on things like Grindr and on Scruff, the number of people who sex shame me literally on a hookup app that's for hookup, sex hookups, they will try to sex shame me for being on prep. And I wonder whether that is a legacy of the sex shaming that was coming on the back of people who are HIV positive and sort of saying, well, you deserve it because you had lots of sex. That's very interesting. I mean, I, I, I think you're asking the wrong person in terms of because of I, culturally and generation wise, I, I'm more in tune with what you're saying. Right. So it, I'm perplexed by that, too. I, I mean, where would that come from? But I also think, too. I think the younger generation kind of grew up on Will and Grace, right? Where being gay was very, very accepting. Gay sex may not have been very accepted, but being gay was very accepted. I think in our generation, being gay and, and gay sex was went hand in hand, right? And I think maybe that might have been where the disconnect is, where, you know, um, in our in our attempt to, to be accepted by mainstream media, you know, we, we've, we've uh, you know, exchanged leather parties for, for quiche, you know, parties and, 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 you know, barbecues with neighbors. So it might have been, I don't know, it's a very interesting disconnect, um, which has led us to where we are now. All right. And I think now we're just, you know, we're the ones you go to hen parties with. <laughs> Gay bars are not a place where you go to pick up first sex. It really is just a place for, for, for bachelorettes to, to have hen parties and have their cute gay BFFs with them to talk about how fabulous their hair is. I'm not putting that down in any way, but I'm trying, I think that is the big disconnect. Um, now that we have to have gay bars where it is just men only because essentially that's what they were designed for. Right. So I think that kind of, now there's a weird gay sex shaming culture, which I think is very, which is very strange. The challenge I have with all of this is of course, a bit of me is grateful that they're not beating me up. Mm -hmm. And a bit of me feels like I should be grateful for, for being able to walk down the street. But at the same time, another bit of me says, well, no, don't, don't exist in gratitude. It's like when people mm. used to say to me, oh, you must be so grateful that your parents are accepting of you being gay. Mm -hmm. And I'd be like, I'm not grateful. That's like minimum. Yeah, that's I'm the bare son. minimum of their job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's their job. You know, yeah. And that's not to that's not to belittle them or to, or to devalue their their kind of liberalism, but it's they would agree. I think they would agree with me that that it isn't something that I should be grateful for. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a dangerous path for us to go down as a queer community, for us to start sort of tugging our forelocks and just going, Oh, thank you for the scraps. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think Little Nas X and Little Nas X is so important because he's not existing as I'm a rapper who just happens to like guys. He's like, fuck you. I am gay, 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 super gay. Like in case you haven't noticed, I'm fucking gay. I think that's super important. I think, you know, with Drag Race and with all these things where we're attempting to kind of cross over into mainstream, we've lost our identity and we've lost our DNA. And I guess we didn't know this back then, did we? We thought, okay, it would be right to be tolerated. It would be great to be accepted. I didn't think any of us knew we would be trading in our, our identity and what made us special in order to make us mainstream. We live in a hetero-dominated society, so when heterosexual culture does something, it's going to rub off on us. So when we have to sort of sell out and sell out our identity in order to be accepted by straight culture, 
it's then not surprising that we sort of have this hollow vacuum within our own culture that, that we then kind of subsume straight culture into it and mm. sort of say, oh, we're only attractive if we're butch and wear plaid shirts mm-hmm. and we can't yeah. wear nail varnish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. It's not it's not even a trade-off. It's a sell-off, isn't it? Because we, like, we're not getting anything out of it if we, if we can't be ourselves. And what the fuck is the point? You're not tolerating me. You're tolerating an idea of what you want me to be. And like, what the fuck? Like, I'm not, I'm not interested in that. And Carrington Kelso makes a really great point uh, in his episode where he's talking about uh, black queer uh, North American identity. And, and he's talking about how to to try and beat the fact that it is just a silenced group, that it's hard enough as queer artists to get heard, but as black queer artists, it's even harder. And I think he makes a brilliant point in that he says, we need to stop asking to be invited to tables. We need to just make our own tables. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. And I think that was the spirit of, of the 70s and the 80s too, right? We didn't really ask and wait. We're like, nope, we're going to make our own. I do think it's fascinating the relationship that rock music had towards disco that is mm-hmm. effectively homophobia and racism. A hundred percent, yes. And misogynistic, right? I mean, the whole disco is dead was really just a reaction to, you know, how dare Latino, black people, gays, and women have a voice and have a chance to be heard and express themselves. So yes, and that's another reason why I particularly chose or gravitated towards this kind of genre because it was kind of like, okay, a genre that I really wasn't supposed to be in, but I'm like, no, fuck that shit. I'm going to be in that and I'm going to sing about, you know, sex and things that are, are part of my world um, in a voice and in a, in a genre that, you know, would not have had me 20, 30 years ago. And that sex positive is so, so important, especially for those of us looking for mirrors in music. It's why I love Brendan McLean, who's another one of our guests. You know, his his content is so sex positive. It's just brilliant. And Ash Devine as well. These these songs that just have I was about to say have the audacity to be sex positive, but it's not audacity. It's just it's just authenticity. Mm, that's a good choice of word, yes. I do, I have to confess, I do love my disco. Is there a deep dive disco song or a deep dive disco artist that maybe isn't that known? that you could recommend to listen to? I'm um, just, I mean, Sylvester is probably my favorite. Do You Want a Funk is probably one of my favorite songs, just because it's so, uh, it's tongue in cheek. I mean, Sylvester, of course, is very popular, but I think he, he's a name that people shouldn't forget. Um, but that, I would say if, if anyone out there is listening and they need a good disco song, Do You Want a Funk by Sylvester would be my, would be my go-to. And from... For me, I would suggest the deep dive for anyone that loves disco is a song by Kelly Marie called Hot Love. Oh. Now, it is, I think, possibly one of the only disco songs I know that has bagpipes in the middle eight. For real. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly Marie had another really popular song, though, didn't she? Yeah. That never made I it to North America. Yeah. Yeah. I'm writing that down. Kelly Marie. So, Kelly Marie Hot Love, and I'll put a link to it in the Hot show love. notes. But seriously, Perfect. any disco song that puts bagpipes, bagpipes in the middle eight. <laughs> <laughs> no, that sounds brilliant. <laughs> <laughs>
Now then, Mr. Slade, what other queer artist are you listening to at the moment? I love the Scissor Sisters. I think Jake Shears is really great. Um, Orville Peck is someone that I really enjoy nowadays. Um, those two are probably the ones I like the most. Little Nas X. Um, I really enjoy his work. It's interesting, isn't it? The Scissor Sisters don't seem to have quite earned the the queer hero status that I think they, they deserve. deserve. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, they're, they clearly were bigger in the UK than they were in North America. I think in North America, they were still considered kind of a queer underground type. Wow, type really? Band. Yeah, yeah. No, they weren't very, very popular here. Um, I've seen them play, I think, twice, um, but it was in quite small venues. And I think perhaps maybe in North America, they might have a, a different perception or a different reaction than they did in the UK. Because I know they were huge in, in Europe and in the UK. Yeah, they were uh, Not so much here. Yeah, not so much here. They're, I think here they were still considered a, a gay band. Things don't get translated so well once they cross the Atlantic, I find. <laughs> I mean, we can spend an entire day talking about what's, what doesn't get translated across the Atlantic or gets lost. That happened to Blondie, didn't it? So they were mm-hmm. assigned to, they're an American band, but ultimately signed to a British label. Is that right? And they I believe made so, it Chris here first. Mm-hmm. Same with the Scissor Sisters. Same with a lot of acts, which is interesting. The UK has better taste in music, though. Maybe we just got better distributors. And you Nothing got better, better taste. <laughs> <laughs> Much better taste in music. <laughs> no, no, that's why I love going to the UK. I mean, it's got a better taste in everything. That's very sweet of you, but we are shit at plenty. Don't, don't, don't you be putting on those rose-tinted specs. <laughs> I'm easily charmed by a British accent and, and witty humor. <laughs> <laughs> now then, for those people who are listening to this podcast and want to know a little bit more about you, where could they find you online? Um, so Instagram, Mr. Slade underscore 77. I tend to post a lot there on Spotify, Mr. Slade. Um, those are my main go-tos. So Mr. Slade, I have a new section now in the podcast where I say to my artists, I'm going to give you up to two minutes where I guarantee I won't get out my red pen. I won't edit mm-hmm. a thing. And it's, mm-hmm. it, it's a, a platform on which you can stand and talk about anything you want. It can be your music. It can be about the weather. It can be about maple syrup. You can- <laughs> <laughs> That's Canadian racism. <laughs> can it be about Anne Murray as well? <laughs> Uh, myself. Okay. So if I think if I, if there's one message I would want to share with the world is just, um, don't sweat the small stuff, you know, have fun. I think it's this, the, the age that we're living in now, it's kind of a scary time. And I think it's so important now that everyone kind of learns to tune, tune the message out to some degree and kind of connect with yourself uh, and dance. And I can, that's one of the reasons why I put out music once we went into lockdown is just, you know, I think we all kind of need to be more kinder to ourselves and kind of find what makes us happy and what kind of elevates our, our, our mood elevator, if you will. And um, I think dance. I think now is the time we need to get back together and and dance and hug, and you know, in a safe way, of course. And but I think it's the time that we kind of connect with people. I, I personally think we're, we're up for exciting times ahead. I think, you know, um, 
I think we've all been in this traumatic experience together. We've all been experiencing it. It's not like just one group or one country. And I think we can use this time as a great time to kind of connect with each other. And I think that's just so important if we're going to survive. Now, what do you think your 15-year-old self would think of you and think of the man that you've become? Good question. Um, I think he would be proud. I think he would be proud of the fact that I I live my life by my own rules and I'm completely in control of my life. And um, I've created my life for me, which, you know, I've um, engineered myself basically to quite a large degree. So I think my 15-year-old self would be very proud of me today. Do you have any other material due out soon? Yeah, I just put out a song called Love Assassins, um, and I'll probably put put out another song next month just in time for December. I've been more of an acoustic guitar ballad type song. Whoa, your genre all over the place. I love it. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think that's how we listen to music now, right? It's a little bit all over the place, and I think that's what's kind of fun. Put it all in a blender and and, and see what comes out. Totally. You'll be doing a Freddie Montserrat Caballé duet next. (laughs) (laughs) Just in time to burst people's eardrums. (laughs) (laughs) Now then, Mr. Slade, for all those people listening to this episode, we've been playing clips of your music throughout, your wonderful music. But if there was one particular song you think that would be a great way to seduce people into your catalogue and to get them hooked and listening to everything else that you produce from now onwards. What do you think that track would be? Um, I would say You Make It So Hard. I think it's a good representation of what my sound is. A little dirty, a little grungy, a little rock and roll, a tiny bit of disco and, and lyrics about um, about uh, about penises. No, I'm joking. <laughs> and those are the types of lyrics we like on this show. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> we need more cum songs. <laughs> <laughs> I've got pen to paper as we speak. <laughs>
Many thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode with Mr. Slade. Remember to listen to him on the usual streaming platforms and find links to his homepage in the show notes. We have exclusive Key of Q content over at patreon.com slash in the key of Q, and there you can join other listeners by supporting the show's production costs for as little as five US dollars a month. Tell me what you thought about today's episode with Mr. Slade on social media using the hashtag queer music, or email me direct on podcast at in the key of Q.com. And rate and review the show on your podcast provider, it really, really helps. Our theme tune is by Paulie Nido at unstoppablemonsters.com, and thanks to Paul Smith, our PR guru, and digital brand manager, Olivier Namé. And thanks to Kajen Kanthar and Murray Lang for their support in making this episode. The show is presented and produced as ever by me, Dan Hall, and made at Pup Media Consultancy. I'll see you next Tuesday. And Mr. Slade, thank you so, so much for sharing with us your story and your fantastic music. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. <laughs>